told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring, them, bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled that what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Father, please would we hear your words this afternoon. Amen. Great, we're, as I said earlier, kind of doing this four-week series, thinking about what the kingdom of heaven is like, looking at parables Jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. And this week we're seeing that the kingdom of heaven is growing amongst the weeds. It's growing amongst the weeds. As we start, I want to share with you some of the best marriage advice I was ever given. And it was this very simple piece of advice. Expectations are important. Expectations matter. You need to get your expectations right, otherwise there's going to be problems. Tragically, as it happened, actually, the, the couple who gave us that advice are now separated, which is kind of upsetting uh, in various ways. But I think the advice still holds. Expectations matter. 
See, if your expectation going into marriage is that you're always going to be happy, it's always going to be easy, and every single day you're going to wake up and just be so thankful you're married to your spouse, very quickly you're going to run into problems. Because when that isn't your experience, your assumption is going to be that you've married the wrong person. Or maybe it's, over more, it's more trivial things, and what will happen is, because you've got different expectations about things, you end up falling out over stuff that doesn't really matter. Maybe one of you is adamant that you have to make the bed every single morning, and the other one's approach is, well, it doesn't matter, we're going to mess up the duvet again later. Why would we even make it in the morning? What's the point? And you end up just falling out, not because one of you's right and one of you's wrong, but just because you have different expectations. And if you don't communicate them, they just kind of rumble away and rumble away until it becomes a problem. Or think of another kind of slightly more significant issue that might appear in a marriage, where one of you assumes that the basic approach with your kind of diary is that you always check with your spouse before committing to anything. The other spouse takes the view that you say yes first and check it's okay later. That is going to run into real problems if you don't communicate about that. Because what's going to happen is one spouse is going to feel controlled because they constantly have to check everything, and the other spouse is going to feel ignored because their opinion isn't sought before decisions are made. Expectations matter. And that's not just true in marriages. For those who share houses with other people, you can see the same issues appearing with your housemates. Maybe one of you assumes that this housemate relationship is going to be one where you spend lots of time together, you really commit to one another. The assumption is that you'll be around unless you say otherwise. The other housemate's assumption is, well, it's cheaper to rent together than it is to rent two separate one-bed flats. So we're going to live in the same four walls, but basically we have nothing to do with each other. It is just a functional way of saving some money. Those are two different approaches to living in a house together. And depending which one of them you end up with, if you end up with different ones and you don't communicate about it, problems will form. Or think about what happens with the washing up in a house. Are you one of those people who thinks dinner's finished, we need to wash up straight away? Or are you one of those people who thinks, well, we need to use the pan in five minutes' time, so now I'll wash it up? If you and the people you live with are different on that, they'll just be kind of low-level annoyance the whole time. Getting those expectations right matters. Expectations matter. And it's not just true in our living situations. Think about the fresh-faced 21-year-old. They've got their first job, and amazingly, their first job is also their dream job. They expect that when you get your dream job, it's going to be happy and fulfilling all of the time. What happens two weeks in when they realize that's not how jobs work? That yes, there are some moments where that's the case, but that is not constantly the reality. What happens is they come to the conclusion that they must be in the wrong job after all. And so they quit their dream job, and they end up doing something else, and two months into that, they have exactly the same problem where it wasn't perfectly fulfilling all of the time. And so they quit. And they just bounce from job to job to job because they've got their expectations wrong. They expected work to be permanently fulfilling, and it wasn't always. Expectations matter. It's not just true with houses. It's not just true with jobs. It's true with God's kingdom. And so we need to think, what are our expectations of God's kingdom? What do we expect God's kingdom to look like? Because if we have the wrong expectations, we will end up drawing the wrong conclusions. 
That's what happens in all of those examples that I just kind of went through. If your expectation is that one thing happens and it doesn't, you draw a wrong conclusion. It's not the perfect job for me. My housemate doesn't care. My spouse doesn't love me. I must be married to the wrong person. Whatever it is, wrong expectations lead to wrong conclusions. And so partly what Jesus is doing in Matthew 13 is helping to set right expectations. To set our expectations of what God's kingdom will be like so that we don't draw wrong conclusions. Last week we saw what we're to expect in terms of the results of the spread of the good news of the kingdom. Some of it will fall on good soil and there'll be wonderful encouragement from that. And lots of it will fall on other types of soil and they'll be more discouraging. This week, we're going to have our expectations set about what God's kingdom kind of looks like. And so the way we're going to set up this afternoon is we're going to look at six realities from this passage that should shape our expectations. We're going to do them in two sets of three. Three from the kind of main parable in this section, and then three from the two smaller parables in the middle of it. Uh, After each set of three, we'll have some kind of time discussion group where we're going to answer kind of one big question each time. Let's then first dive into the the first parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Let me walk you through the story. There's a man, and he goes and sows good seed in his field. He goes home and he sleeps. And while he sleeps, an enemy comes along and sows some weeds amongst the wheat. Because like a kind of slightly strange practical joke for us, but I guess in those days that would have been a really frustrating thing to happen. The enemy comes and sows the weeds. You don't notice at first because it's not instantly obvious what's weed and what's wheat. But as they grow and as the wheat starts to kind of sprout its heads, then the weeds become obvious. And so you've got wheat intermingled with weeds. The owner's servants notice this and they go back to the owner and say, how has this happened? I thought we only planted the right thing. Did we get the wrong seeds from the shop? The owner says, an enemy did this. And so the servants say, well, do you want us to go and get rid of the the weeds now? Should we go and just get rid of them so we've just got wheat back in the field like we always intended? And the owner says, no, because if you do that now, you might risk upsetting the root system of the wheat. And so it won't grow to its proper height and we won't get the harvest we'd hoped for. Leave it until harvest time. And when harvest time comes... We'll separate them out. Then we'll get rid of the weeds, because if we ruin the the wheat's root system at that point, it's fine because it's fully grown. And then we'll collect the wheat. The weeds will be taken off to be burned. The wheat will be taken into the barn. That's the kind of parable. If we didn't have the explanation, if we didn't know the explanation, I kind of think I'd be with the disciples. Jesus, tell us, explain to us the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Fortunately, they ask, so we have the answer. What's going on? Here's the first reality from this passage. Reality one, there is an enemy. There is an enemy. We see that in the parable. And then verse 39, we're told the enemy who sows them is the devil. There is an enemy in the parable, seeking to grow weeds amongst the wheat, and in the world. In the world, there is an enemy. The devil is actively at work. 
See, the enemy in the parable isn't an enemy who kind of sits in the neighboring field and just gets grumpy about how much the wheat is growing. The enemy is actively trying to stop the wheat growing, actively sowing weeds amongst the wheat. He doesn't sit back and bemoan growth. He sows weeds. He seeks to do damage. He is an enemy. And so what we need to remember is there are two planters in this world. It's not that God is kind of planting against a neutral backdrop. There are two planters at work. There are two kingdoms trying to grow. The kingdom of wheat and the kingdom of weeds. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. Two things growing side by side. There is an enemy. One of the strange things with this passage is how it's been interpreted over the centuries. So for the first 15, 16, 1700 years maybe of the church's history, the predominant way this passage was interpreted was that this is talking about the church. And it is saying that within the church there will be both true believers and false believers. And hey, that's true, that that is the reality in the church. We see false teachers arising time after time. So people like Augustine, Calvin, J.C. Ryle, famous kind of people throughout church history, have said this is talking about the church and we should expect the church to be mixed. I just don't think that's what's going on. And here's why I don't think that's what's going on. Verse 13, where am I looking? Verse 38, the field is the world. The field is not the church. The field is the world. That is, it is in this world that there are two planters at work, Satan and the Lord Jesus. They are both planting. They are both seeking growth. The enemy seeking to disrupt growth, seeking to attack the kingdom of God. But it's not a promise that there will always be kind of evil ones within the church. No, the promise is that within the world we will face opposition. And so as we go about planting, as we go about seeking to grow God's kingdom, the, ex- the change in expectation we need based on this reality is that we should expect it to feel like a battle. We should expect kingdom growth to feel like a battle because there's an enemy. Battles would be pretty easy to fight if the, em- if the enemy didn't exist. The enemy does exist. There is an enemy, and that enemy is trying to win. And so, it's going to feel hard. There is a battle. There is an enemy, so there is a battle. Here's the second reality. God allows the weeds to flourish. See, in the parable, when the owner's servants realize what's going on, what they, don't, they go back to the owner, and what the owner doesn't say is, yes, get rid of them now. It's interesting, isn't it? What the owner says is, just wait till harvest time. Wait. In the explanation, we get told the, the, the harvest is the end of the age. That is when the kingdom of Satan, those who oppose God and his words, that is when that will be uprooted, not before. And so what that means is that weeds might flourish in our world for a while. Weeds might flourish in our world for a while. 
You might wonder why God does it that way. I think that's a fair question, and I think the answer is we don't know, but he chooses to. It kind of makes sense with the wheat analogy, right? Like, if you pulled out the weeds, then yes, you would mess up the wheat's root systems. It doesn't really seem to make sense. Why would God allow Satan's weeds to flourish in our world? I don't think we know, other than that we are told that he does allow that. And so we should expect in this world the weeds to flourish. A few ways that might cash out. Our non-Christian friends might just be very successful. They might live happy and healthy lives. They might feel like they're getting blessing after blessing after blessing. They wouldn't talk about it in terms of blessings, but you look at their life and you think they just seem to be getting everything. That might happen. Weeds flourish. It might be those who particularly oppose God and his kingdom, and that seems to be getting stronger and stronger. Those who hold secular, anti-Christian worldviews seem to be growing. Those kind of worldviews seem to be spreading. When times like that happen, don't be surprised. Don't conclude that that is God losing control. Because God allows the weeds to flourish. But he only allows them to flourish for a while. Because here's the third reality. A harvest is coming. A harvest is coming. So in the parable, we're told that they wait till harvest time. That at harvest time, the the weeds are picked out, bundled up and sent off to be burned. The wheat is harvested and used for food. The harvest, verse 39, is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. See, when it comes to the end of the age, that time when Jesus comes back, there are only two outcomes. On that day, everyone will be exposed either as a wheat or weed. Wheat or weed. Let's look at those two outcomes. The outcome for the weeds, verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those aren't easy words to read because that is the brutal reality. But that is the reality that God's word presents for us because God is a God of justice. And so there will come a day where those who side with Satan, those who oppose God and his word, those who reject God, who don't listen to his commands, who ignore his rule, who turn away from his son, will face judgment. And Jesus describes it in pretty graphic terms. A blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not a pleasant place to be. That's the point. That is what will happen to the weeds at the end of the age. And because that has happened, then let's see what happens to the wheat. Verse 43, then, and only then, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Isn't that a wonderful description of heaven, of where we're heading, the new creation? We 
the righteous, those who, not because we are righteous in ourselves, but those who Jesus has made righteous, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That is the future for God's people. We will shine, glowing, radiant like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. If we, if we grasp that a harvest is coming, there'll be various expectation changes that will come as a result of that. In this world, we will expect things not to be as they ought to be because we know which side of the harvest day we are. Two flip side implications of that. Don't expect post-harvest life now. Don't expect post-harvest life now. Don't expect now that the church will grow without any opposition, that everything will be wonderful, that millions of people will come to be saved any given week, and that the church will grow at some incredible rate until everyone becomes a Christian. It just won't happen. That does not mean that we give up on reaching people. It doesn't mean that no one will, but it does, it just, it does mean that not everyone will. We know that. That's the reality. So when we don't see that reality now, when we, don't see the re- when we don't see everyone coming to Christ now, don't be surprised. Don't expect post-kingdom life now. Secondly, don't expect pre-harvest life to go on forever. A change is coming. A harvest day is coming, and life won't be like this anymore. There will be a day when things will change forever. There will be a day where things will look different and they will never go back to this way of life again. A harvest is coming, and on that day, for God's people, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. That day is coming. Don't expect post-kingdom life, a post-harvest life now. Don't expect pre-harvest life to go on forever. Three realities that help us to set our expectations. There is an enemy. God allows weeds to flourish. A harvest is coming. There's a discussion question that will appear on the screen. Uh, About seven minutes uh, into groups, which of those three realities do you most need to remember to correct your expectations? Um, Remember the question, and we'll flip back a slide, and that way you can have the realities in front of you as you discuss. Into groups, and then we'll flip the slide back in a second. The kingdom starts small. The kingdom starts small. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds. A mustard seed is about two millimeters in size. Um, I don't have one to hand, A, because I forgot, and B, because you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. Uh, So I probably could have told you I was holding one, and you wouldn't know. They're small. Mustard seeds are really small. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts small. It doesn't start with a big impressive bang. The first hearers were probably expecting the kingdom of God to come with some kind of wonderful military invasion as the the Messiah and his troops kind of stomped in and took Jerusalem by force. That's not how the kingdom starts. The kingdom started with one 
ordinary looking man in first century Judea. The kingdom starts small. Now, on one level, that's quite hard for us to think about because on one level, we, we aren't where the kingdom started. The kingdom of God is now much bigger than one man in first century Judea. The kingdom does, though, start small. It did start small. And I think this is an encouragement for us because in some ways we will feel a bit like this because there are parts of our country, parts of our world definitely, but even parts of our country where there are basically there's either no gospel witness or next to no gospel witness. The whole Christian movement started with one person in first century Judea who entrusted it to 12 people. It starts small. You might well feel really isolated and insignificant as a Christian. Maybe you're the only one in your workplace, the only one in your family, the only one in your friendship group, the only one on your street, the only one in that kind of social club that you're a part of. It starts small. It always does. The kingdom starts small. The second half of that reality, the kingdom grows large. The kingdom grows large. Because the encouraging flip side is, yes, it starts small, but it doesn't stay small. No, a mustard seed grows, according to Jesus, and becomes the largest of the garden plants. It becomes a tree. Mustard trees can grow to about 20 foot high. So big are these trees that the birds come and rest in them. We see that, don't we? The largest of the garden plants becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. I think that's telling us two things. Firstly, it's telling us that it's big enough for birds to come and perch in its branches. But secondly, birds and branches carry with it pretty significant Old Testament weight. So if you go and read through uh, books like Ezekiel and Daniel, often you get kingdoms pictured a bit like a tree, and most famously, I guess, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Kingdoms pictured as trees, big, powerful kingdoms as big, powerful trees. And the nations are described as kind of the birds who come and find rest in those trees. The big kingdom brings in the nations. And so when Jesus says it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches, yes, he is saying it will be big, but he's saying much more than that. He is saying people from the nations will come in. And we've seen that reality, haven't we? Because the kingdom of God now is not confined to a small pocket of the Middle East. It is global. The kingdom grows large. From that low base where it started with one and then 12, the growth has been phenomenal. That is the kind of growth we are to expect. If you look at the, kind of some of the stats on the global church now, the nations really are coming in. We see kind of discouragements in the UK generally, not entirely, but generally in lots of ways. The Christian gospel across the world, the kingdom of God is growing at phenomenal rates in places like Iran, in places like China, where we don't really even see most of the growth because it's so underground. But then it's booming in Africa, booming in South America. 
The kingdom grows large. So when we feel the reality of kind of the fact that it starts small really acutely, when we feel like we are the only one, remember where it all started and remember where it's got to now. The kingdom starts small and it will definitely and does definitely and has already grown large. That will definitely be true somewhere. It may well be true in your office or your family or your neighborhood or your friendship group. It starts small, but it grows large. The kingdom starts small, the kingdom grows large, and thirdly, the kingdom grows everywhere. Because Jesus tells one more parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the day. We all kind of understand yeast, I imagine. It works its way through the dough. It's the rising agent that allows bread to end up being what it is. What's Jesus talking about? In what sense is the kingdom of God like yeast? Well, I think there's two possibilities. One is definitely true, and a second may also be true. Let's start with one that's definitely true. The kingdom grows everywhere. You see, I guess after we've had two parables, so we've had the, the wheat and we've, had, uh, and we've had the mustard seed, both cases where the kingdom grows, but we could be left thinking, okay, so I, I understand that the, the mustard seed grows into a tree, but it kind of seems, you know, a tree grows in one corner of the garden. What about the rest of the garden? Is that kind of left untouched? Yeast grows everywhere. No part of the dough is left unaffected by the yeast. There is no yeastless dough left by the end. Definitely, that is at least what is going on with this picture. It could be a bit more than that. Because often in the Bible, when the yeast language is used, it, the kind of most famous place it's probably used is when Jesus warns his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees, this kind of polluting yeast that will corrupt this kind of false legalistic teaching that will spread and will cause problems and will transform and kind of take with it those whom it clings to. That is, the dough is altered by the yeast. If, therefore, that is how it's being used in this kind of sense that it, it alters what it touches, it may well be that actually Jesus is showing us that as the gospel goes out, as the kingdom of God advances no area around it will be left untouched by it. Not that the whole culture will suddenly become entirely Christian, but that it will sh shape the culture that we are around. So we will be part of shaping a culture in a way that honors the Lord. That might be what's going on. And I guess either way, as we do go about our daily lives, we are to honor the Lord where we are, and we pray that that will change those around us. But let's zero in on the first thing that's definitely true and try and draw out how that helps us. No part of the dough is left yeastless. Every part of our society, every part of our culture, every part of the globe will end up affected by the yeast. The gospel will touch every part of the world. The kingdom will touch every part of the world. Not to say that every person individually 
but actually there will be nowhere that the gospel doesn't reach people. The kingdom will go everywhere. There's wonderful encouragements as to where that is happening. Communities in our country that have had no gospel witness for a while and people are reaching them and seeing wonderful fruits. There are still places in our culture, either class groupings or racial groupings or religious groupings, where the the kingdom isn't really making an impact at all. We get to pray for places like that. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week uh, with someone talking about, or maybe it was last week, uh, talking about uh, the Bangladeshi community in Tower Hamlets. Basically, no one has has managed to reach them with the gospel. Almost impossible to permeate that group. And yet the yeast gets everywhere. So let's pray for places like that. It's an encouragement, isn't it, to think that? That the kingdom is growing everywhere. It will grow everywhere, albeit amongst the weeds. We go back into groups. Um, the discussion question is going to appear. It's the same question as last time, but with three different realities to think about. Uh, so we'll flick back to the realities again, go back into your groups. Which of these three realities do you most need to reset your expectations?